0: Somebody has an epileptic seizure while they're driving a car that comes from out of nowhere. They lose control of the car as a result and strike somebody. And a hundred years ago, we would be able to say, yeah, this person's demonically possessed. They welcomed Satan into them. And the appropriate thing to do now is burn him at the stake. And what we've learned since then is this is an arena where none of that stuff is relevant because we're not looking at a rotten soul, we're looking at somebody's screwed up potassium channels in their brain. And we instead come up with something that is completely free of retribution. We say, okay, take these meds and the law in our state is you got to be seizure-free now for X number of months on these meds before we can give you your driver's license back. It's a better world in which we don't burn people at the stake because of some biology they had no control over. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk.
1: For the last weeks, I have been telling you about the contents of my new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And last week, I was explaining how the ideas that arose on university campuses started to escape the quads of this world in about 2010. Social media was one key part of it. But in parallel, there was another development, which I'm calling the short march through the institutions. The idea of a long march for the institutions was invented by Rudi Dutschke in Germany in the context of the 1960s and 1970s. The idea of the student revolutionaries should consciously enter mainstream institutions to try and influence and even subvert them. The process I'm talking about is not conscious. This is not some kind of conspiracy theory, but it is a product of a lot of students, especially at more elite universities, being deeply steeped in the ideas of the identity synthesis by about 2010. Many parts of academia had been taken over by these themes, and even students who were not majoring in comparative literature or such fields were exposed to them through distribution requirements. Administrators were far more progressive, were far more steeped in the identity synthesis even than faculty members, and they had a huge and growing influence on campus culture. And of course, these ideas had started to conquer social media, as I explained last week. And so, by the time that new employees arrived in companies, corporations, nonprofits, universities, think tanks, offices of Congresspeople, by about 2010, a lot of them were deeply steeped in these ideas. And they were particularly steeped in these ideas. Institutions that shared three kinds of characteristics: a) that they hired mostly from elite universities where the identity synthesis was particularly influential, b that they competed for young talent, having to promise young people that they could bring the whole self to work, that they would see that that is reflected in the workplace, and see that they claim to be doing good for the world, making it very hard to stand up to oppose demands couched in the language of social justice. And so you really have seen over the last decade how that has transformed many institutions. Diversity trainings in corporations used to mostly encourage people to get along. They had a common humanity framing throughout much of the 1990s and early 2000s. For the last 10 years, they have started to embrace more and more explicitly a confrontational framing rooted in the identity synthesis emphasizing to people how even small and inadvertent slides were an expression of deep-rooted white supremacy and encouraging people to file grievances against each other. Many university campuses now actually have anonymous tip lines in which people can report so-called microaggressions. And perhaps the most visible influence of this has been in nonprofits like the ACLU, which used to be deeply committed to defending extensive free speech rights on principle because of its recognition that you have to defend these rights for everybody if anyone is to enjoy them. Now, under the influence of that kind of inside employee activism and the external pressure points through negative press coverage, the ACLU has explicitly restricted what kind of clients' rights to free speech it is going to My guest today is Robert Sapolsky. Robert is a professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford University, and he is a prolific author. His most recent book is Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. This episode of the podcast goes a little bit further astray from day-to-day politics or even the big themes of geopolitics to think about the big philosophical question about whether there is such a thing as free will, what the implications would or would not be if we came to a conclusion that free will does not exist and how that should inform our thoughts about, yes, important political issues like criminal justice. As you will see, this was a lively conversation, Robert, is convinced that there is no free will and that this has very important implications for society and politics. I, as you will see, am rather skeptical about that argument. Whether or not there is capital F free, capital W will, I believe that for all intents and purposes, the kind of free will we should care about certainly Exists And some of the implications that deniers of free will want to
0: draw from their work, therefore fail to apply.
1: Robert Sapolsky, welcome to the
0: podcast. Well, thanks for having me on.
1: I'm really excited for this conversation and to touch on different elements and aspects of your work, but we should need to start with your new book in which you claim that there is no such thing as free will, that it's a mistake to think of ourselves as having free will. How did you come to that conclusion?
0: Well, this is not going to count as terribly scientific, but I was 14 when I decided that there was no such thing. I was having all sorts of, oh, I suppose early adolescent sort of strum and drong or however one pronounces that. And one night at two in the morning, I woke up and I had the sudden clarity as to explaining everything that had been bothering me, which was, ah, I get it. There's no God and there's no free will and there's no purpose to anything. And it's been like that ever since then.
1: So what is the intellectual case for that? Why should we trust your intuition when you were 14?
0: Well, I certainly had some hesitancy there. Basically, the science. I'm half a neurobiologist, half a primatologist. And people, whether they would say so or not, have been working on this issue intensely in laboratories with lots of different disciplines. And what you've got is enough of a landscape of insight as to what's going on with the nuts and bolts of our behavior, that even though every piece of it is not there yet, you can't predict everything about behavior, you're never going to be able to. Nonetheless, you see the structure of what makes us who we are. And when you look at that closely, there is not a crack anywhere in it into which you could you know shoehorn in a notion of free will.
1: Why is it that predictability and the notion of free will are in such direct conflict in the way you put it? Which is to say that I might be able to predict the behavior of a close friend of mine because in part, I know what will make them to certain things. I know about their values. I know about the kind of way in which they reflect about the world. And so I know that if I say a particular kind of thing, well, I like to give a certain kind of response. But they might say that as long as the action accords with the reasoning processes and the values and so on, that doesn't actually undermine the fact that there is a useful notion of free will at play here. So why is it that sort of in the debate about free will, the idea that if we can predict something that proves the inexistence of free will has been so central?
0: Well, that plays out on a number of levels. On the most abstract one, we're never going to be able to predict everything. And chaos theory is this whole very frothy way of exploring the fact that the world can be utterly deterministic yet Unpredictable and formally unpredictable, and it doesn't matter how big of a metaphorical magnifying glass we have to look at some phenomenon, there's unpredictability that's just intrinsic in three body problems. And as soon as you get any version of that, but on the more meaningful level, the predictability we have at this point is a statistical one, you may not be able to. Look at every kid growing up in a horrible, threatening, unstable neighborhood and predict exactly what's going to come of every one of them. But you can predict with a fair amount of confidence that, on the average, more of those kids are going to wind up in trouble with the police than a cohort growing up in a nice, like, (laughs) cushy suburb. You get predictability on that level. But the main thing is, it really doesn't matter. If the science has not brought us to a point where we can predict exactly what your friend is going to say next, what it has brought us to is the point where we can understand how that friend got to that moment and how there was no agency going on in that.
1: Right. But as I understood what you had said previously, in answer to my previous question, what you were saying is, you know, scientifically, we can predict how people are acting. We can predict what processes are in the brain, and that somehow should make us skeptical of free will. But I suppose my question about this is, how do we distinguish between scientific findings which show that how we're going to act is somehow determined in a way that is supposedly in compatible with free will from scientific findings that simply describe the way in which human beings reflect, describe the way in which they decide how to act. How do we know that if we have an MII scan that shows a certain kind of thing about what happens in the brain just before we say something or just before we take some decision, how do we know that this should push us towards the direction of, oh, it was... Predetermined, the idea that we're making this decision is kind of an illusion versus it being precisely the description of what goes on when human beings exercise free will.
0: Well, that's great because what we've shifted things away from here is like whether or not all of this pivots on the ability to predict what somebody is about to do. But instead, I think one should shift more to a notion of the influences, the determinants Are subterranean. The amount of stuff going on in us that we have absolutely no idea was happening biologically, and which in the aftermath we completely ascribe then to agency. Um, And this is a world of why did you do what you just did? And what we're mostly oriented to and intuitively so is thinking, well, did I intend to do that? did I intend to do that at that moment? Did I know I was doing that? Did I know what the consequences were likely to be? Did I know that there were alternatives to what I could have done? And as soon as you get answers of yes to those, everyone's intuition is you have just seen free will in action. And the whole point of the subterranean stuff is that's not beginning to touch what the actual question is, which is where did that intent come from in the first place?
1: So help me understand how our view of ourselves should change if we embrace your argument, right? So let's say that I have a week of vacation coming up and I'm trying to figure out, am I going to go to Mexico City or Buenos Aires? face a kind of choice and I reflect on this and I make a list with different pros and cons and I look up hotels and flight prices, right? And then I come to some kind of decision. I say, okay, Buenos Aires, it is. How is it that the naive view of me exercising free will in that process leads me astray. And how is it that a scientific understanding of all the subterranean processes that are involved in it, all the ways in which I might not be aware of what's truly driving my decision should make me re myself and redescribe how the world actually works?
0: Well, I think once getting a sense of what those subterranean influences are, because it's astonishing, the range of them. Okay, someone does something. They they pick Buenos Aires over Mexico City. And as a result, they have carried out a behavior. They push this little button on this side instead of that little button. And in other words, you know, six neurons up there in your brain just made that finger go to the button on that side. And you say, well, why did that happen? Why did that occur? Why did the person choose Buenos Aires with that? And what you're doing there is asking, well, what was going on in the brain a quarter second ago? What was activated? What wasn't all of that good? So that keeps a neurobiologist happy. But you also have to ask what went on in the environment in the previous 30 seconds that stimulated The brain with certain influences there sit in a room that smells of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies and people become more generous on the average sit you down when you haven't had enough sleep and you will perceive threats that other people don't sit you okay so that contributed. But what about your hormone levels, your hormone levels that have been surging or doing whatever they're doing over the previous six hours or so? If it turns out you had elevated levels of the hormone oxytocin, you would have been more likely to believe someone trying to convince you to like go on a tour in Buenos Aires and not go to the one with that hormone influences how readily you believe stuff, how readily you trust the opinions of someone who you view benevolently. But then you also have to factor in, whoa, did you have some amazing, horrible trauma in your life in previous years? Do you have PTSD? Did you find love during that period? Did you find God? Whatever. Because all of those will have changed your brain and not in some like fuzzy metaphorical sense, like stuff will have been constructed in your brain that wasn't there before and your brain will work differently. And then you're back to, well, what about your adolescence, which is the last part of your life when you're doing a major construction project on your brain? And then childhood, and then fetal life, which bizarrely enough has a huge amount to do with the kind of brain you're building, and then genes. And then just when you thought you're done, you got to ask questions like, so what kind of culture did my ancestors invent 500 years ago? parentheses, what did ecological influences have to do with that? Because they played a big role. My God, what does that have to do with, you know, 500 years ago with me becoming me? Because within minutes of your birth, cultural influences were shaping how your mother was mothering you. And that turns out to have an image. You put all those pieces together, and oh, let's throw in some evolution as well. You put all those pieces together, and it produces the seamless arc of biology explaining how you got the brain you had just now that shows Buenos Aires over Mexico City. And when you look at how those influences work, it's not just, ooh, there's a lot of different influences. It winds up being the same single influence. If you're talking about the influence of your genes on your behavior. By definition, you're also talking about evolution. And by definition, you're talking about your childhood environment that had all sorts of epigenetic effects on those genes of yours, determining how readily they're turned on or off for the rest of your life. And by definition, you're also talking about the proteins made in your brain 35 minutes ago and all those pieces in between. And the point is... You look at this whole seamless set of inputs and there's not any space in there for something to happen, which can only be, you know, defined as, you know, fairy dust. Because it requires breaking the rules of how all that biology happens to figure out how you got to that moment of choosing one option over another. So
1: great. I feel like we're getting into the heart of the discussion now, which is great. Let me respond to a few of those those things. This is a side note. I think that, that study about... The smell of cookies is part of a broad set of studies, psychology and social psychology, that have somewhat fallen under pressure from the replication crisis. My understanding is that the core study in that has failed to replicate. But the larger point here is about how we should think about free will in relation to social and cultural and perhaps biological influences on how we act. And certainly there is a very naive notion of free will that says I have free will because who I am and how I think about the world and what kind of decisions I'm going to make is completely unconstrained by where I grew up and the country I'm in and the choices that are available to me and I'm this kind of self-creating agents floating in the ether, uh, just making decisions. Now, that clearly is an incredibly naive notion that you and I both rightly reject. But I suppose I would wonder how vulnerable to your critique or how many of the things you are saying are responding to a more sophisticated notion of free will, where I say, yes, of course, I'm deeply shaped by my culture. Yes, of course, the fact that I'm choosing between Buenos Aires and Mexico City is shaped by a million things. Perhaps I want to go to a Spanish-speaking country because I learned some Spanish in high school. Certainly, I wouldn't be considering going to those places if we didn't have modern industry and airlines and if I didn't have a job that allows me to book the ticket. But obviously, there's a million things that go into that decision, but that doesn't mean that when I sit down to say, all right, Buenos Aires or Mexico City, I don't have a moment of choice in which I have thought about the options, evaluated them against some of my values, some of my preferences, and which sure, perhaps I'm influenced by the fact a little bit that I saw a beautiful picture of Mexico City yesterday, and that happens to be on my mind, But but I nevertheless have a meaningful choice. And I feel like, there we get down not to all of the questions, but social influence you're talking about, because I can. Acknowledge all of that and have as strong a notion of free will as I did before this conversation, but there we're really down to your claim about a biological process that somehow is going on in the background in ways that I'm not myself aware of that actually make me prey to the illusion that I'm choosing when somehow by the moment I was born, I was predetermined that all of this would happen. And for that, I haven't quite heard the argument. I mean, why is it beyond the social influences that I think we can readily acknowledge there's something going on in biology that should make us skeptical about the idea that as i'm looking at that list saying all right buenos aires it is i have a moment of freedom in deciding where i'm spending the next week
0: well i think we've just reframed it a bit because as you said you consider your options you reflect on your quote values and preferences And the question at that point is, where do you get those values from? Where do you get those preferences? You didn't consciously choose those because at the time that those were incorporated into what makes who you are, that was based on other things you had no control over. You're sitting there with your values and preferences, but they didn't come out of thin air. And the point is, say, you cannot, no matter how much you try prefer to prefer something else. Your preferences and values are, you know, the tip of the iceberg of what makes you you. And you didn't intend to intend what you intend. You can't successfully wish to wish for something different from what you actually do wish for. So in the moment, we have this seeming open horizon of agency But what we then do with that perceived agency is intend to do something. And where did that intent come from? And the whole point is you take somebody where we make the world as similar for them as for you. And you both sit there and you watch a promotional video for going snowshoeing in Buenos Aires or whatever it is they're trying to convince you you could do there and pay the money for and you come out of it saying my god I could just imagine how great it's going to feel there in the sun and all of that and somebody else could come out and say oh my god their cinematography and that was so cheesy who did they hire for that how that happen that you turned out to be two different people in that regard Or someone who would come out and say, yeah, you know, looking at that makes me really want to go hang out in Zimbabwe. Where do those differing values and preferences come from that produce such different outputs?
1: We're really getting somewhere here in an interesting way. So now we have two different kinds of questions on the table, I think. The first is, is it possible to have agency over some of the things like your values and preferences in a meaningful way. On that topic, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm open to your argument. I think I'm agnostic about it. I don't entirely buy it, but I don't not buy it. It does seem to me that people change their values in interesting ways, that we're not just the products of social influences, which are hidden and so on, and the ways that you seem to suggest that there is something like moral reflection that helps to form who we are in more meaningful ways. Now, you can say in the background, the things that make us reflect in those ways and that make us form that is itself determined by other things. We can have a debate about that. But certainly, I think that in meaningful ways, as adults, our preferences and tastes are reflected ones that are more than just dictated to us by our environment, at least in the first instance. Then we can talk about, well, what is it that caused our reform of those preferences and values and so on, right? But the other point that I then want to make is again about whether the way in which people often argue against the free will, in which I think you argue against free will in this context, isn't slightly ambiguous between two different interpretations, Right. Which is to say that I'm willing to say for the sake of argument, look, yes, at some level, the preferences I have and the tastes I have are determined by my environment and so on. But that is still consonant with the fact that as I'm sitting down to make a choice between Buenos Aires and Mexico City, I am in a meaningful way reflecting on my preferences, reflecting on my values, reasoning about which of those two courses of action is going to be more enjoyable, which of these two courses of action are more in tune with my conception of life and what I want out of life, and that I therefore settle on one or the other due to my personality and ideas about the world and so on. And I think to most people, that is where the meaningful center of free will lies. When you're saying there's no such thing as free will, what really freaks people out is this sense of, I thought when I made a decision about who to marry, when I make a decision about whether to have children, when I make a decision about where to go on holiday, I am reflecting in a deep sense on my values, on my thinking about how to act in the world. On all of those things. But really, there's just neurons hitting against each other in my brain, and all of that is an illusion. I'm driven by all these other things. That's what freaks people out. But I don't think you've made an argument against that notion of what determines our actions, or even that notion of whether there is a meaningful process of moral reasoning going on in that moment. Now, you might know, say that process of moral reasoning is predetermined by personality traits and values that stand in the background. So, there's a kind of predetermination, but it still runs through a process of reflection about our values, of trying to figure out how we want to act in the world, but I think is the meaningful piece
0: of, quote-unquote, free will to most people. Well, to that with our example here, it generates a very simple question. Why do you wind up as the sort of person who respects reflecting and self-reflection and analysis? You could just as easily have wound up somebody where whim is what defines your values about how you go about making decisions because you have to be guided by your heart. Why do you wind up being somebody who thinks reflection at that point and thinking hard is a good thing. I
1: think this is where getting away from the terminology of free will is helpful because free will can mean so many different things that I think it becomes confusing. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, you're right. If I'd had different parents, perhaps I would have different values and preferences in the world. If I had completely different genes, perhaps I would not be somebody who prizes reflection. The point, though, is that my self-conception is as somebody who holds a set of values that I can reflect upon and who's trying to order my life in accordance with those values, as well as some other desires and so on, insofar as possible. And the reason why I'm freaked out when somebody is telling me I don't have free will is that it makes me think that all of that is an illusion. And you're not, I think, arguing that that's an illusion. Right, You're saying, well, but the fact that you have those values and preferences is itself determined in part by a social environment. Sure, I'm willing to admit all of that, but that doesn't actually dissolve the fact that it's meaningful to have a set of values and preferences and to try and order your life in accordance with them. And that this entails choices I make in light of those values that help to shape what I'm going to do. In my life?
0: Well, I think a key phrase in there that you used, which I'm probably not going to quote exactly now, but your self-conception. First off, there's the question of whether it is an accurate predictor of what you're going to do, because an awful lot of us have self-conceptions that involve a hell of a lot more self-control or social grace or talent or capabilities than turn out to actually be the case. But assuming that that's actually congruent, your self-perception, even if that is an accurate picture of sort of what you wind up valuing and choosing, the self-perception and self-conception there, where the problem comes in is your belief that you constructed it, that you chose to have the teacher who had the enormous impact on your life, that not only did you choose to be mugged by somebody way back when, which has left you with all sorts of geopolitical views about things, but that you had the sort of brain to reach that conclusion after that experience occurred to you. You know, you're talking about, you know, the circumstances around you. Of course they shape you and yeah, no one's denying that. But when those Sources occurred, you were not a blank slate at that point. You had brought all sorts of filters, biological, environmental, their interactions, as to how you were going to interpret what that thing just did to you, which aspects of it you were even capable of paying attention to or remembering all of that. We do not experience any of those, yeah, of course there's influences as blank slates.
1: You see, I think you're arguing here against the notion of free will that I certainly don't hold, and I think most sophisticated people don't hold. If what you're arguing against is a blank slate account of what drives us and how we act, I agree with you completely. Of course, I'm a product in many ways of the kinds of cultural and other influences that bear on me. I think that's obvious. And I don't have to have a naive view of my values always completely drive my actions. I'm perfectly capable of saying, look, I have a set of values that hopefully drive part of what I do, but I'm well aware that sometimes I'll fall short of them because, you know, I'm trying to lose weight, but the burger is really tempting and I can't stop myself. I think that I'm a a generous person, but I didn't sleep enough. And so I'm, you know, in a bad mood and suddenly I'm sort of rude to a waiter in a way that I shouldn't be. We're capable of recognizing all of those things and yet holding on to, a notion of being engaged in a meaningful endeavor of making decisions about the world. Let me shift a little bit to what, if we buy your account, is the upshot of it for how we should act in the world? You quoted me back to myself. I'm going to quote you back to yourself for a second. Towards the beginning of a conversation, you said, when I was 14, I decided that there's no such thing as free will. And you use the term decided. Now, presumably, you're saying you're speaking metaphorically, or it's just a habit of our language to use terms like decided. You did not decide in a real or deeper sense. But, and I know this is not an original thought or objection, but how much should and could it change our view of the world if we agree with your argument? You know, we're going to talk about this and have a wonderful conversation about this. And then we'll say, all right, where should we go to lunch? The Indian place or the Chinese place? And it'll feel like we're making a decision. And when you talk about the pivotal moment when you embraced those ideas, you said, I decided, should we change how we actually talk and think about the world on the basis of this insight? Now we're capable of changing how we talk and think about the world on the basis of this insight.
0: Well, on the language level, Truly embracing this demands something that we're not capable of. And the the philosopher John Searles has this wonderful sort of whimsical quote about this, of him saying, oh my God, if we believe all this stuff, there's no free will. And he happens not to believe there's free will. But if we believe, are we supposed to go into a restaurant? And when the waiter comes over, who we haven't been rude to, but they come over, Are we supposed to say, well, I'm a hard determinist, so I'm just going to sit back now and see what I order? No, because the only way to reconcile that is to produce this model of there's a me in there, separate of all of this, a me in there, who, yeah, can listen to radio programs and hear about what scientists are up to and then maybe keep track of the news, but maybe miss that news item because... the you in there was going to the refrigerator to get a snack or something, that there's a separate entity in there that could be influenced by all of that stuff. And the question then revolves around show me a me in there that's distinguished from that, that's separate from all of that stuff, a me that could put as an absurdity... A notion of there's no free will of saying that there's a me that could sit back and say, yeah, well, I'm a hard determinist so I'm just going to watch and see what kind of meal I order now, Um, that that is a possibility. You know, flipping the argument over when you say, yeah, of course there's influences, all of that. Let's sort of redefine that in the nuts and bolts sort of biological world we come from, which is to say both you and I believe that this Stuff is made of things like atoms and brains are made out of things like cells that operate in certain ways. So switching over to that, show me a way in which a neuron could have done what it just did that was completely independent of everything that came before. Show me that it could have had a different genome. Show me that it could have had a different history of what genes are readily activated. Show me it has a different history as to how it wound up connecting into this circuit instead of that circuit. Show me that all of those things didn't matter and that neuron, obviously on a ridiculously reductive level here because it doesn't work this way, but show me what went on was completely independent of all of those and what you will have done is just shown that, yeah, you're allowed to say, yes, 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 influences matter. Yeah, no one's denying that. Show me anything that occurred independently of that, and you can say that, yeah, influences are just influential, rather than when you put all those pieces together, there is nothing that made you you that happened separate of how all that stuff works.
1: I want to sort of decide to leave that dispute to the side for now. I think we have different views about how clear it is that we're determined all the way down. We're clearly not bereft of influences. I don't think that we would want to be. I don't think that a sensible account of human agency would want to claim that. It's not clear to me that it follows that we're determined all the way down. But on that, I'm generally agnostic. Where I have stronger views is that the claim that we're determined in this way is often taken to imply, taken to entail a radical revolution in how we should think about what human agency consists in and what the structure of a world is, that doesn't seem to follow. And here's where sort of Searle's argument is very interesting, that when you're sitting down to decide what to read, uh, you can't get around reflecting on, oh, I wonder what this would be more tasty or that would be more tasty. But if dish A is more tasty, perhaps it's more fatty and I'm trying not to put on weight. So you're going inextricably to find yourself re-engaged in a process of decision making, which I think is part of what we care about when we talk about free will. Now, more broadly, As somebody like Tim Scanlon, a previous guest on this podcast, has argued and reflecting on free will, there's lots of reasons for us socially to respect the choices that other people have made, irrespective of whether or not there's such a thing as free will, right? Like, let's flip the perspective to the waiter. The waiter comes to the table and you say, I'd like the steak. And perhaps the waiter has read your book and is convinced by it and says, you know, I know that this is not really free will. It's not really a very meaningful choice. It's just the way in which various neurons bumped up against each other. And so why should I respect that choice that Robert wants to have steak? I'm gonna give him chicken because I think it's more tasty as it happens. And also he shouldn't eat too much red meat, right? And Scanlon points out, no, that would be wrong. Even if the waiter is right about the fact we don't have free will, They'll be wrong because actually you're probably a better judge as to what you find tasty than the waiter is. Secondly, there's a form of social respect and autonomy that we want to preserve. It would feel like an insult for the waiter to go above and beyond your choices in the way in which women are often offended if somebody they're on a second date with just orders for them at the table. Objection is not just that they don't like the food they ordered. Perhaps they order exactly what the woman would have ordered in any case, but there's something about disrespecting their agency there that is a problem. And when you stretch that argument further, you also get to interpersonal relationships. One of the key implications that free will is often meant to have is to say that if you are being an asshole to me, if you treat me poorly, then I can't judge you for that because you didn't choose that. It's beyond your control in some kind of way. So how can I be mad at you? But Scanlon in his work, I think, has put pressure on that notion very effectively as well, but actually human relationships are about the kind of sets of intentions you have and the sets of personality traits you have and they're about the relationship in which we stand to each other. And whether or not you have free will, if you treat me ill, I should be able to blame you for that and I should be able to demand an excuse for us to, an apology for us to be able to reestablish friendly relations. And none of that is actually imperiled by the supposed absence of free will in the way that people sometimes assume. So how do you respond to that sort of line of argument?
0: Good. Okay, because this is exactly where this should be taking us. The How do we evaluate, how do we judge when someone has supposedly been showing free will to us? Okay, let's take an example here that working with the restaurant one that is very concrete And most people would have no problems with, which is the waiter comes over and the person orders whatever. And the waiter happens to think that's like an idiotic decision. This person has no taste whatsoever. Or I'm even offended. I'm offended. I happen to be an animal rights activist and I'm offended that they ordered something with red meat or whatever. And I'm judging them for that. And what's going on instead is the person is violently allergic to vegetables and tofu or something. And we would say, oh, okay. well, we see here the waiter doesn't know the person's inflammatory system developed in a way so that bits of tofu on the like their tongue puts them into cardiac arrest or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a special case. But that's not a special case because suppose instead the waiter comes over and the person orders red meat and the animal rights activist is absolutely enraged and despises the person, all of that. And why did the person order what they did? In this case, not because this is how their inflammatory system works, but because they got raised with values where today is a doty tofu day in their spiritual belief system. And in that case, is the waiter allowed to be any more pissed off at them at violating the waiter's own moral preferences? No. This is how this person became that good. It's more subtle application of the same thing, that it's not by chance this person became someone who would go into, like, you know, all sorts of inflammatory crisis. If they ate this food and fell over on the floor, oh, they didn't choose to become that sort of person. It's much harder for us to see, oh, they didn't choose to be the sort of person who doesn't order tofu today because in their theological system, today is the day saint whoever was martyred for their unwillingness to eat tofu and thus this, you know, It's the same thing. It's just harder to see the threads. In the same way, you have a jury, and I've done a whole bunch of work trying to teach juries about the brain. And a jury these days, if you wind up in the right jurisdiction with the right sort of demographic of who, a jury is going to be pretty comfortable with the decision that here's someone who had a concussive head trauma which put them into a lengthy coma when they were 10 years old and they came out the other end, a different sort of person, someone who now cannot regulate their behavior and they are organically impaired when they did this outrageously damaging, impulsive thing or whatever. Most juries in sort of predictable parts of the country can sit there and say, oh, they had nothing to do with... The fact that there's somebody with this part of the brain was damaged. Yeah, I could understand it because of that concussive head trauma. We can do that by now, but what we can't do is say, oh... I see exactly how this person wound up with exactly this sort of brain limitation because of these 11D different influences that went into their mother's stress hormone levels when they were a fetus and whether the neighborhood valued this or that. It's much easier for us to say, okay, yeah, 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 I get it. They have this thing called this neuropsychiatric disorder.
1: So to be clear, for I want to understand the implications here, right? So what you're saying is, if somebody has a traumatic brain trauma and we can see how that leads to a failure of inhibition on aggressiveness and therefore they end up uh, committing a violent crime, that should count as a kind of excuse or mitigating circumstance or it had sort of some kind of significant consequence for how this criminal defendant is treated. So I just want to understand your position. So presumably now, if we embrace the broader rejection of free will, if we say, actually, everybody is determined by the environment and by their genes and by the way in which neurons knock against each other, right? Then that same excuse should be available to everybody. Perhaps you are a child of extremely rich people growing up in great privilege and your parents never disciplined you enough and you ended up being really spoiled and all of that led to you committing a terrible violent crime in the end. You have presumably the same excuse available to you. Because like the person who grew up in poverty and so on, who had the brain trauma, you are a product of your influences and environment. So if you take this seriously and you say the person with a brain trauma should not go to prison, for example, then you must say the same for all criminal defendants. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. And what we're up against is intellectually, it's a lot easier to understand single dramatic causes of things. And it's easy to come out the other end of considering this person with this singular, undeniable, neurologically credentialed experience of having had a concussive head trauma. It's a lot easier for us to understand how that person came to have no control over their behavior than when it's distributed causality, distributed more widely than we can even imagine and distribute it in ways that we can never ever be conscious of, and thus we have a hard time giving any credence to it, that's a much harder task for us to say, oh, that's why they did it. They had no control over that either.
1: Let's grant that for the moment. Let's say that the action of a rich, spoiled brat ending up doing bad actions is determined in exactly the same way as the action of a person who had a brain trauma, and therefore they should both not be put in jail, right? I think this actually illustrates perfectly how we think that questions turn on free will when they really and thoroughly don't. I think the, the moral notion that you seem to have in the background here is that the judge and jury are standing for God, that they are good and bad people. And if we had free will, then we might find them to be bad human beings. And the righteous punishment for being bad human beings is that they should go rotten in jail. But you come in and say, actually, there's no good or bad human beings in that kind of way because we're all products of our influences and environments and genes and all of those kinds of things. And therefore, it is unjust to put these people in jail because they didn't have an ability to act otherwise, right? It would be immoral. I think that that is misconstruing what the role of a criminal justice system is. The role of a criminal justice system is that we are trying to maintain a society with people who have very different motivations and and desires and so on. And we need to maintain public order. If we don't punish people for acting in deeply socially destructive ways, we're going to end up with a hellscape in which people are killing each other all of the time. And so we need a criminal justice system that acts on that. And we know from many studies in criminology, but certain forms of deterrence work. Perhaps they work in ways that are reflective of free will. Perhaps they work because of ways that you can explain irrespective of free will. But we know, for example, that rapid and certain punishment is a powerful deterrence, whereas uncertain but possibly very severe punishment is not necessarily a very effective deterrent, right? This is something that social science has shown again and again Again. And so the reason why we're punishing these people is not that we're playing God, and in the place of God, we, the judge and jury, are making sure that the evil go down to jail and the good are set free. What we're engaged in is a set of institutions and practices. Uh, to maintain public order, which require us to identify and isolate the kinds of people who have a tendency to engage in violent behavior, who have a proven record of engaging in violent behavior. And we want to make sure that they can't continue to engage in that. And we want to build a deterrent that stops other people from engaging in similar behavior. And whether or not they have free will, whatever it is you want to call the decision-making process that goes on, we have ample evidence from social science that whether or not they're punished rapidly, with great likelihood, for uh, violating the laws of the realm will, in fact, influence how much crime happens in our streets. And so this is why I think this sort of obsession with whether or not free will exists in terms of how to think about our social institutions or our interpersonal institutions is a distraction. It's It's a confusion.
0: Good Okay. We're transitioning now as to whether it's a good idea to convince people that there's no free will or not. And just to sort of completely define the landscape, it's not only, as you said, how we evaluate good and evil and all of that. It's how we feel about somebody who orders, goes into Ben and Jerry's and orders Rocky Road instead of, you know, Cherry Garcia and how they wind up with this completely morally amoral sort of state or whatever. So it applies to all of it. What I think you're getting at is, even in a world in which we decide none of us are responsible for who we became, nonetheless, now and then, instrumentally, in a purely instrumental way, it is a good thing to do some moralizing. It's a good thing to hit somebody over the head if a society runs on sufficient deterrence, but recognize that is merely a tool, and it is merely a tool in that some of the time it's a good thing to say to a kid who's just done well on a test, wow, you must be so smart And some of the time it makes sense to say, wow, you must have worked so hard. Went, oh, neither of those are really the case. Oh, because studies show that both of those increase the likelihood of this happening, but this one is more effective. Yeah, these could be tools. These absolutely could be tools, but it has to be within a backdrop of no actual responsibility. And that's where it sticks in everybody's throat because if we just believe the former version, somebody does something unspeakably horrible and we say, okay, they are now going to spend the rest of their life in jail and there's no chance of them getting out and they will never ever get to be home for Christmas and smell the whatevers and have a great time with their family, That that's it. If you do that, that's what we're going to do to you and then it may be scientifically provable that... You know, people are now less likely to do whatever, but you would have to show that we'd be willing to work it that way when in reality, we put the person on this fabulous tropical island and they spend the rest of their lives getting like great golf lessons and free drinks or whatever. Because if we truly believed all we want out of it is the instrumental value Oh, yeah. In this kind of sort of rapid response, you can deter people where we should be okay with sticking the person at the resort forever after. And we're not because we think they deserve punishment. We take pleasure in the righteousness of it. We believe that blame and punishment is justified for actions that people did not have control over because it fits with our view of stuff. And the way to see that those are just temporary constructs is we have figured out how not to think that way in certain domains. Somebody has an epileptic seizure while they're driving a car. They have no history of it before. It comes from out of nowhere. They lose control of the car as a result and strike somebody. And 100 years ago, we would be able to say or 200 years ago in certain cultures we would be able to say yeah this person's demonically possessed they welcomed satan into them and the appropriate thing to do now is burn him at the stake and what we've learned since then is this is an arena where none of that stuff is relevant because we're not looking at a rotten soul we're looking at somebody's screwed up potassium channels in their brain And we instead come up with something that is completely free of retribution and the need to blame it on. We say, okay, so take these meds and the law in our state is you got to be seizure free now for X number of months on these meds before we can give you your driver's license back. We've subtracted all of the stuff you were referring to. We've subtracted it out of that. And number one, society hasn't fallen apart and the roof hasn't caved in and It's a better world in which we don't burn people at the stake because of some biology they had no control over.
1: One small quibble and then a larger point. The small quibble is that, of course, on a deterrent's account, you might still have reason not to send people off to paradise in the Caribbean because that would not be a very effective deterrent. So you might have views about what the nature of a punishment needs to be for the deterrent to be effective.
0: Oh, every day you produce... Technology, you photoshop the person into being like exquisitely tortured sitting in their torture chamber in your federal penitentiary. That would accomplish if all you want is that but you don't you don't want just that. You might have broader reasons not to want to empower
1: authorities to lie to the population in that kind of way, right? So anyway, I mean, I think there's very plausible accounts of why on the deterrence grounds, you might want punishment, certainly not in the extreme case you outline involves sort of, you know, a beach holiday in the Caribbean, right? But I want to go to a different point, which I think is more philosophically central here, which is that I think that there is a relatively straightforward account of why we should distinguish between the obvious interfering cause which determines how somebody acts and the broader ways in which how our more stable character traits and dispositions might be predetermined, right? So let's go to a very simple example. A friend of mine suddenly kicks me. It matters to me in my relationship to that friend whether somebody hit their knee and therefore as a pure physical reflex they kicked me or whether their personality traits are such that they kicked me in anger at something I said. And that distinction is going to hold, even if I grant for the sake of argument, that they did not choose their personality traits, but their personality traits are to do with how their parents raised them or what their genes are. Because I want to have the kinds of friends who are well-disposed towards people around them, who are capable of controlling the anger, who are well disposed towards me and like me and not the kinds of people who suddenly want me to be in pain. On the first explanation, I say, oh, all of that is true of my friend. Somebody hit their knee in a bizarre way. They kicked me. They should apologize, even if it wasn't entirely their fault. That's part of our social convention. But it doesn't actually change my view of who it is that I'm friends with. If it turns out, yeah, hey, it turns out that this friend of mine is actually incapable of controlling the anger. And every time I say something I don't like, they're going to be in risk of kicking me. And in that moment, they think, I hate Yasha. you know, I want him to suffer. I don't want to be friends with that guy. And I don't want to be friends with that guy, even if you're right, that they didn't choose in this kind of blank slate way what their character traits are. And this is important for a broader point because I think that we are in danger if we believe that a rejection of free will really should change how we act with each other of dissolving some of the most valuable things in human life and human relationships. If I love somebody, I love their character traits. I love the physical appearance. I love how they are in the world. And I do think that So people can always change and people can always act differently in extreme situations. That is a pretty reliable set of attributes that help to steer them through life. And so I am grateful to my good friends. I might be in love with a partner because of those things. Now, if you tell me, my partner is only beautiful because her parents happen to have certain genes that combined in certain ways. To yes, of course, I'm aware of that. I don't think they chose what they look like, but I'm attracted to them because of what they look like. And that is something that I cherish. If you tell me, hey, perhaps the character traits are down to whatever genes, whatever, sure, but the point is that my friends are wonderful, generous, intelligent people, and I value that in them, even if they didn't choose that all the way down. And I worry that an embrace of this deep skepticism about free will, or or more to the point, a belief that skepticism about free will in your sense somehow implies this radical set of conclusions about how to change how we act is wrongly undermining the basis for friendship and love and our mutual appreciation for each other, which in my mind is perfectly compatible with the sort of determinist account that you are giving.
0: Good. And it's an account and a compatibility, the way you're framing it, that's going to make perfect sense to listeners of your program and anyone who would like buy my book and read through it and all of that. And what we're talking about here is, by definition, a very rare subset of humans. People who have been lucky enough to have radios and value conversation, and are able to do that instead of working, you know, digging for diamonds in some horrible mine in in Zimbabwe, and on and on and on with that. But framing it this way, it's because those of us who would care about a subject like this are the lucky ones, because we're trying to understand, does biology take anything away from the fact that I am loved, and I love someone, and I have music tastes, and I am made happy by this composer. And we're talking about the subset of humans who can think about stuff like that and have the privilege and opportunity. Most of the time, what we're talking about here is relevant to people whose lives have been made worse, who have been punished, who have been deprived, who have been ignored, who have been marginalized because of traits that they had no control over. And for the likes of you and me and our listeners, it's a total bummer if it turns out that the person you love, you love because of like your olfactory receptor genetics and they just smell amazing to you and you're not even aware of it. But wow, that's what science is telling us. And wow, that's how I turned out to be with the person I loved. Whereas what most of this is relevant to is what we think of people whose behaviors are such that no one in their right mind would ever love them. And what we think about people whose behaviors are such that we are willing to say they are worthy of being deprived of certain of life's pleasures. And because most people out there, when you look at a world that thinks it is okay to praise and reward and blame and punish for things that we had no control over, it's only a subset of us who are the lucky ones for which that's a bummer. And we have to reflect on, oh, that's where my love came from. For most people, this is like a wonderful liberating thing because most people are having lives that are made sadder or more painful or more deprived or lonelier because of us seeing attributions of agency where there wasn't at all. You and I are having a very privileged conversation here. Well, I'm not sure
1: about that. I think that most lives are made richer and more meaningful by the fact that we have friendship and love in it. And that's something that people who up and down the social scale experience and are capable of. There's certainly some lives of people who are deeply disordered, who have trouble sustaining those relationships. But I think a view of a world that implies that having friendships or having romantic affections in your life uh, is somehow the preserve of a tiny elite is rather surprising to me. But I want to put the last question to you. I think this has been a wonderful way of exploring this topic. But you're wondering, and this goes back to whether we're capable ever of actually stepping away from the mental habits that are involved in attributions of free will. You say, is it okay to blame people for things which they may not be able to choose? Are we morally at fault? when we make those attributions of blame. But that is assuming, once again, that you and I, in this case, are capable of that kind of form of moral reflection. And that if we act in the wrong way, we become subject to moral opprobrium. But if we were consistent about believing that the absence of free will makes it impossible to blame or praise people, to punish or reward them, then we shouldn't have that concern. We shouldn't have that worry because we're going to do whatever we're going to do. And there's no standpoint from which anybody might heap praise or blame upon us for praising uh, blame or, or, or praise on somebody else.
0: Okay, well, we're in danger of a, a Mobius strip here of, of sort of recursive things. Uh, you can't judge somebody. Yeah, but does that mean I can't judge you for not judging somebody and so on all the way down from there? I think the best way to appreciate that is to understand that there's all sorts of realms in which we don't have this conversation at all, because we have completely solid societally agreed upon intuitions. We have this totally no need to reflect upon intuition that it's not okay for people to be slaves yet if you and i with the exact same usness were living 300 years ago both of us could have been like flamingly stereotypical liberals and bleeding hearts and and you know, valuing reflection and reasoning all of that, but it would just seem intuitively obvious to us and unneeding of any reflection that some people are meant to be slaves. And in fact, they're better off that way. And what we take to be so much of an obvious intuition now that is completely separate from this conversation is something that was not in the past and would not have been to us in the past. And we have figured out, oh, that's not part of the discussion because we all figured out that is like unquestionably the case. It's not a good thing if we allow like people to beat their their stockyard horses to death or something because we're of a different time and place. And sort of what I keep coming back to is the knowledge that at some point in the future, it will seem intuitively obvious that the intuitions we had about all of this made absolutely no sense whatsoever because in your and my lifetime, we've been able to see some of these shifts. If I was a professor 50 years ago and I had a student who every week was like spacing out in class and they weren't getting their assignments in on time, and I would have had a whole bunch of attributions that I don't have now because I now know about this thing called attention deficit disorder and the organizational skills that that plays havoc with. And and I know something about the science of it. And that is now a domain, which in my mind is completely irrelevant to what you and I have just spent the last hour on, because we're talking about the stuff that we haven't explained yet in that way.
1: Robert Sapolsky, I was hoping to cover a lot of your other very interesting work beyond the book, but we got deep down this rabbit hole, which is wonderful. Thank you for coming on the show. And hopefully you'll come back sometime so we can talk about all of your other interesting work.
0: Well, thank you. Totally fun. this was great. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.